This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, everyone. I'm Zane Ash. I want to get you straight up to speed on the, the breaking news out of Florida, where the U.S. Navy base Pensacola has confirmed that an active shooting has taken place. An active shooting has taken place at a naval base in Pensacola, Florida. We know that the shooter has been killed. Five people have been injured and five patients are being treated at a nearby hospital. The base is currently on lockdown there in Pensacola, Florida. We will bring you much more on this breaking news as and when we get more information. In the meantime, let's get you up to speed. On the business news, it is uh, Jobs Day, Jobs Friday, and what a Friday it was. U.S. unemployment numbers have come in way stronger than expected. In fact, 266,000 jobs were added last month, November, and less. We're actually expecting growth of only about 180,000, so this is much better than expected. In the meantime, the unemployment rate ticked slightly lower to 3.5%. Wages moved higher as well as traders inspect the numbers. It's looking like a solidly higher open here on Wall Street as we close out what has been a relatively choppy week of trading because of a conflicting or different reports rather when it comes to uh, trade. Before today, stocks were on track for their worst week since September. Futures, let's take a look right now, are also getting a boost from the latest on trade. China says it is working to waive tariffs on some U.S. pork and soy exports. It could be a further sign that trade negotiations between the U.S. and China are progressing. Stocks are trading higher in Europe right now, despite some weak economic data from Germany. German industrial output fell 5.2% in October. That is the biggest drop in a decade. Stocks finished solidly higher in Asia. Let's get uh, right to the drivers, though, now, and uh, a closer look at today's jobs report. It is the latest piece of data that points to a healthy U.S. labor market. Let's bring in Paul LaMonica, who's joining us live now. So, Paul, I mean... Two, over 260,000, certainly stellar. Just walk us through how the GM strike and those strikers returning to work affected these numbers. Yeah, you had that coming back into this report saying so about 50,000 jobs or so added in the month because of strikers returning. But even if you net that out, because we all knew that they were coming back, you net that out and you still have jobs gains of about 216,000, which were much higher than the forecast of about 185,000 jobs added for the month. So I'm happy to see that the market is treating this as good news as well. Good news is good news that the U.S. economy still seems to be rolling along quite nicely despite concerns about the trade tensions around the globe. And it, I think, will diminish some of the fears that we had about a major slowdown heading into 2020 and possibly even a recession. But which sectors, though, Paul, more specifically saw the best job gains? And, and, and you know, with these jobs reports, everybody looks at manufacturing uh, in terms of potential signs of a slowdown there. What were the manufacturing numbers like as well? Yeah, the manufacturing numbers were obviously lifted by the return of many of those auto workers. So that was a big bright spot. Healthcare continues to be another area where you are seeing jobs add. And I think a lot of people feel that that's going to be a secular long-term trend as the U.S. US population continues to age and will require more health care. It was a bit of a mixed bag for uh, retail because you had some clothing stores you know, cutting jobs while mass merchandise stores were adding jobs. So that's possibly 
you know, uh, you know, both a casualty of some of the struggling stores in the malls that are um, you know, going under, but the strength of companies like Walmart and Target and other mass merchandisers, they are probably adding some employees heading into the holiday shopping season. All right, Paula Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, so Uber has released a safety report detailing almost 6,000 incidents of sexual assault. Shares in the ride-hailing company are down more than 1% in pre-market trading. Hadass Gold joins us live now. So Hadass, what do these numbers tell us about issues when it comes to safety of ride-hailing apps like Uber? Well, Zane, actually, one thing that surprised me when reading this report is it's actually the first ever safety report we're seeing from Uber. And Uber has been around for just about 10 years. This is the first time we're seeing them actually lay out the numbers here that they have of both sexual assault and also physical assault. So what we're seeing, as you noted, about almost 6,000 cases, just under 6,000 cases in 2017 and 2018. Among those, about 464 reported rapes, 19 deaths related to physical assault. Now, what's interesting is they say in about 45% of the cases of, of uh, sexual harassment, they said the drivers were actually the victims. But when it came to rapes, uh, the reported rapes, almost all of the victims were reported to be the riders. Now, Uber points out that they've done in the United States about 1.3 billion rides. So this is a small percentage, but still rather startling numbers to see laid out here like this. Now, actually, the pledge for this safety report came after a CNN investigation in April of 2018 when uh, CNN found that about 103 Uber drivers had been accused of sexual assault and also just laid out some of the inconsistencies that Uber had when it came to checking the records of the drivers on their platform. Now, Uber CEO said in a tweet uh, linking to this safety report, I suspect many people will be surprised at how rare these incidents are. Others will understandably think they're still too common. Some people will appreciate how much we've done on safety. Others will say we have more work to do. They will all be right. Now, Zane, of course, safety has been a major issue for Uber, and it's something that's also affecting its actual just operations. It's something, for example, here in London that officials are taking into mind when, when, when deciding, actually, in the last few weeks, they didn't necessarily want to renew Uber's license to even operate in London. So this is something they clearly know they need to get on top of in, in order to just not only retain the trust of the riders, but also be able to actually operate legally in some of these cities, Zane. So what is Uber going to do going forward to make sure that that people are safer? And as you mentioned, in some of the cases, um, obviously with, with rape and sexual assault, it's mainly the riders that are in danger. But in other cases, mm-hmm. when it comes to violence, the drivers are also in danger as well. So what is Uber doing going forward? So Uber says it's, it's taken some extra steps already. For example, now it has an emergency button in its app that when you press it, it will automatically connect to emergency services in your area. It says that it has also improved background checks, criminal checks, removing drivers from the platform. But there are still some issues. For example, with the licensing issue here in London, London officials said that some drivers were just replacing their picture on the app and driving under other people's accounts. So it's still possible that the driver that you thought you were getting is not who's actually going to pull up in your car. So there's still several steps left for them to take in order to appease some of these regulators and, of course, some of these riders who are incredibly concerned about the safety of their Uber rides. Now, again, 
Uber shows you the numbers and they say this is a very small percentage of their total riders. But it's interesting to see how in the beginning, everything around Uber was sort of very, everything was out there. You were just kind of getting in a car with a new person. And now they're starting to tamp down more on more on safety because this is becoming such a huge issue, not only for their riders, but also for their bottom line. All right, Hadas Gold, thank you. Elon Musk is on trial over a tweet calling a British rescue diver a, quote, pedo guy. The case took a twist on Thursday when the defense actually submitted this photograph as evidence that the caver had been unharmed by the tweet. Claire Sebastian is joining us live now. So, uh, Claire, what exactly is the defense? What is uh, Elon Musk and his team trying to prove uh, with that photo of Theresa May? Right, Zane. So one of the things that Vernon Unsworth, this British caving expert, has to try to prove in order to win damages from Elon Musk is that the, the tweet uh, caused him material harm. That's how he will, will, will claim that he deserves financial damages as a result of this. So what the Musk team is trying to say uh, is that that isn't the case because he was you know, given awards, he got an MBE, and he was given a hero's welcome by the British Prime Minister, as you saw in that picture. And they claim that would not have happened if there was any suspicion on the part of the British Prime Minister or other officials that he was, in fact, a paedophile. And that gets to the other key argument uh, that the, the Musk defense team is trying to make, is that when he tweeted uh, using the phrase pedo guy uh, back in July of last year, he wasn't actually meaning to call him a paedophile. This was just an off-the-cuff statement. They said it was designed uh, as an insult. And when Musk took the stand in his own defense on Tuesday, he said that you know, he was insulted when Vernon Unsworth went on CNN and, 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 and sort of uh, told him that his submarine that he'd specially designed to help with the rescue uh, of that Thai youth soccer team, uh, that that wasn't useful. And he told him to, uh, quote, stick it where it hurts, that he hadn't meant that literally. So therefore, we shouldn't interpret pedo guy literally either. So this is sort of a, 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 a three-day uh, set of evidence that we've now had from these two parts. It sort of gets to the heart of this erratic moment in Elon Musk's life. Uh, and I think uh, that, you know, a lot of people are watching this to see whether or not this will be, uh, you know, in his, in his favor. And what will that mean for his Twitter behavior going forward, Zane? So as of now, the, the, all the evidence has been presented. The jury is going to get final instructions today and then we'll have to make a decision. And what could Vernon Unsworth uh, stand to make in damages if, if he does end up winning this? So that is unspecified at the moment. We don't know how much he, he is asking for. Uh, we do know as a result of this trial that, that Musk's net worth is said to be about $20 billion. That is one thing that came out, although most of that, he says, uh, is not in cash. So this is not a financial concern so much for Elon Musk. But I, but I think a lot of people are looking at this and questioning why he's let it get to this point, why he's standing up there in court, why he didn't just settle. I spoke to one uh, shareholder in Tesla who said that he was annoyed that he was there uh, up in court defending this rather than uh, you know, focusing on the mission of, uh, of, of uh, manufacturing 100,000 Model 3s this quarter. So I think a lot of people are looking at this and wondering, and I think this is revealed that he is still angry about this, that he still wants to fight it, uh, the defensive side of Elon Musk's personality that we saw in such sharp focus uh, last summer. Hi, Claire Sebastian. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Saudi Arabia has pulled off the biggest IPO in history, raising over $25 billion by selling shares in its state-owned oil company, Aramco. The Saudi Stock Exchange confirms trading is going to begin next Wednesday, December 11th. Meantime, falling oil prices remain a major concern, and OPEC is expected to extend 
uh, supply cuts. Matt Egan joins us live now. So first, let's talk about Saudi Aramco. This IPO is huge, but it actually, just in terms of pricing, still fell short of um, Aramco's very, very high expectations. Yeah, that's right, Zane. It, it is a monster IPO, and yet it isn't quite what the kingdom wanted. But for now, we can focus on the fact that Alibaba is no longer the world's biggest IPO. Now that is Aramco. This deal raised $25.6 billion. Um, just to give you some context around that, that's more money than all 117 IPOs on the NASDAQ so far this year. That's according to Refinitiv. And the valuation is gigantic as well. $1.7 trillion is what the market is saying Aramco is worth. Um, that makes it the world's most valuable public company by a half a trillion dollars over what Apple is worth. Um, and if you even just compare Ramco to its peers, if you add up the valuations of Exxon, Chevron, and BP, Aramco is almost three times bigger than that combined price tag. So these are big numbers. Uh, the Saudi exchange did confirm that they're going to start trading Aramco on December 11th. Uh, don't expect any big price swings, though, because they've set a 10% uh, fluctuation limit on Aramco shares. But, Zane, to your point, um, the kingdom really has been forced to scale back their ambitions. I mean, they originally wanted a $2 trillion valuation. They wanted to raise about $100 billion, and they wanted to list on a marquee exchange such as New York or London or Hong Kong, and none of that has happened. I think that's just a reflection of some of the long-term concerns here about both the company and the long-term future of the oil industry. And uh, speaking of uh, the future of the oil industry, we know that obviously OPEC is meeting in Vienna. Falling oil prices has been a problem, especially for Saudi Arabia. Um, just walk us through where what we're going to see in terms of further extensions in production cuts from OPEC+. Plus. Right. So OPEC and its allies are under serious pressure to take action to prevent a crash, another crash in oil prices. And so what we're hearing is that OPEC and Russia will likely announce deeper production cuts. Um, they're likely to increase the cuts by about 40 percent or roughly um, half a million barrels per day. I think the question is whether or not that is enough. Um, unlike the dramatic reaction that we saw in the stock market to the blockbuster jobs report in the United States, um, the oil market does not seem all that impressed so far by what we're hearing out of OPEC. Uh, the press conference um, and, and the official statement um, could maybe trigger more of a reaction. But I think there's two big takeaways here. I mean, one, um, there's a lot of dissension within OPEC. Uh, they met for hours yesterday in Vienna. They were unable to reach a consensus in enough time to hold a press conference, so they just canceled the press conference altogether. Uh, some countries like Iraq really need, they really want to keep producing more, more oil, and, um, and other countries don't want to do that. And I think the other big point here is that you know, they, they are really acting preemptively here if they do, in fact, deepen their production cuts. That's because um, there's record-setting non-OPEC oil set to arrive next year, um, especially out of the United States, where oil production could increase by about a million barrels per day. Um, and Rystead Energy put out a report, and they said, listen, if OPEC doesn't do anything, oil markets are going to be oversupplied and crude prices could crash by 40%. That is not something that OPEC wants, and so that is why they're acting. All right, Matt Egan, thank you.
All right, so these are the stories making headlines uh, around the world. The U.S. Navy base at Pensacola, Florida, has confirmed that one person was killed in a shooting on its campus. The gunman uh, has also been killed. An unknown number of patients from the base are being treated at a nearby hospital. The base remains on lockdown. One day earlier, also in Florida, a UPS driver and bystander would be, were killed after being caught up in a shootout. It started when two suspects robbed a jewelry store, hijacked a UPS truck and took this man, the UPS driver, hostage, leading police on a massive high-speed chase. Both suspects were killed along with the driver and a fourth person. UPS issued a statement saying... We are deeply saddened to learn a UPS service provider was a victim of the senseless act of violence. We extend our condolences to the family. And the House uh, Judiciary Committee here in the United States will hold its next impeachment hearing on Monday. This comes after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told the chairman of several committees to draw up articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. The White House has until Friday evening to decide whether it will participate in the impeachment hearing. Mr. Trump says he's preparing to mount a full defense in the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans. And one of the most famous faces in the fight against climate change is in Madrid for the UN Climate Conference. Greta Thunberg is expected to speak later today before leading a march through the Spanish capital. All this comes as the Australian state of New South Wales tries to confront vicious bushfires and hundreds of thousands of people try to make new homes after floods and droughts ravage their communities in the Horn of Africa. All right, still to come here, will stocks be naughty or nice this holiday season? It could all come down to the outlook for trade. We'll talk to the new head of the IMF and get BNY Mellon's 2020 predictions. Plus, Wall Street Bulls could use one of these. The Street Fighter will introduce you to one of the stars of this year's International Motorcycle Show. That's next. All right, welcome back to First Move. I'm Zane Asher coming to you live here on this Friday from the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, U.S. stocks are ready to rally here on Wall Street after today's blowout jobs numbers. There we have it. Dow futures are up almost 200 points already. The jobs report indicated 266,000 jobs were added in November. Certainly a lot better than the uh, 180,000 that were expected. All of this helped by the resolution of the GM strike and those strikers returning back to work. U.S. jobs numbers were revised higher for September and October as well, suggesting a stronger jobs market than we thought this fall. Meantime, the unemployment rate ticked slightly lower, 3.5%. Wages moved higher as well. Joining me now is Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon. Thank you so much for being with us. So before we get to all things trade, Fed, markets, etc., I have to start with the jobs numbers, 266,000. Stella, what are your thoughts? Great jobs number, blowout. And even more impressive was the increase for September and October because it means the last three months, the average is 205 jobs created, 10 years into a recovery. This is actually extraordinary. We've had a a reacceleration of job growth here. So it's amazing. It's a great job number. So how much of these numbers do we attribute to GM strikers returning back to work? 
So essentially, you're only getting 46,000 jobs. So it's still stellar regardless of that. It's stellar regardless. And because you've, you've, you've raised the number in the previous months when they were on strike, shows right. you that there's an underlying strength to the economy. And the wage growth is going up nicely, not too much. So it's just a, it's a Goldilocks job number. And suggest the U.S. is nowhere near going into recession. Um, when you look at certain things that might sort of move the needle, just in terms of the economy, it's of course got to be trade. We had mixed signals this week. At the beginning of the week during the NATO summit, the president talked about uh, perhaps not getting a deal until November 2020. The next day that was walked back a bit. Um, just walk us through where you see trade relations between the U.S. and China going and, and what that means for the, the state of the economy if it drags on longer than necessary. So I think we have to take the daily vicissitudes of what is being said with a grain of salt. And actually, the market has been taking it with a grain of salt. I think the trade headlines don't move the market as much as they did, let's call it, six months to a year ago. Earlier this week, though, the Dow was down 450 points. Right. So we've recovered from that. And I have to believe that both sides have an interest in some sort of trade deal. There's been pain clearly on the Chinese side, and we have lowered capital expenditures here in the U.S. as a result of the trade war. And the states that are necessary for President Trump's re-election have been having softer job growth. So he needs a trade deal. I have to believe that sometime before, let's call it March or April of next year, there is a deal. The market's already pricing it in. Right. So that's your risk. The risk is there's no there's no trade deal and the market's priced in a trade deal. Okay, so so what where would you say the risk of tariffs being put in place by December 15th, which by the way is only it's only next week, I think. It is only next week. <laughs> We're here already. I think. We're already think. in first week of December. So, if the December 15th tariffs are put on, that would be very negative for the US economy because those are the consumer tariffs. Those are the consumer goods and would hit consumers. As we know here in the U.S., the consumer is 70% of the economy. So if, a, if the consumer stops spending, you actually will affect the GDP growth rate. Those December 15th tariffs cannot be put on. The expectation, again, is that they're going to be postponed. If not postponed, that would be hugely negative for the market and for the economy eventually. You mentioned that the U.S. consumer is huge when it comes to the U.S. economy, um, which brings me to retail. You know, we just got Black Friday, Cyber Monday, stellar numbers there. But it really was a sort of tale of two different stories when it came to retail. You had the likes of Amazon, obviously, Best Buy, Target doing well, and, and Kohl's and Macy's, not so much. So, so what's the story there then? It's a really interesting story in retail because it kind of is a tale of two markets and of two sectors. So. You know, it's clear that technology has disrupted the sector completely. And those companies that have a long-term strategy of how to manage that and how to manage their growth with the use of technology are going to be fine. So Walmart and Target. The companies that are simply trying to make the quarter or simply trying to make the Christmas season are not going to be as successful because this is a long-term structural disruption. And it has to be seen as a disruption yeah. that requires a complete corporate thought process about how to manage it. And some have been better than others. Not all bricks and mortar retail will die, but some will. Um, and in terms of what we think the Fed is going to do um, next year, especially the market's already priced in at least uh, 25 uh, basis points cut. What would, what would have to happen for that to 
drastically change, do you think? So I think a, I think a jobs report like today, actually, this act, this jobs report could be a game changer for Fed expectations. Because the interesting thing about the Fed, they've set the bar high for more cuts, but they've also set the bar much higher for any future hike. So the market's rallying this morning because we've had a great jobs number and no risk of any rate hikes. I think we're probably going to price out some expectations for those cuts next year with this jobs report. The U.S. economy is really doing pretty well, and the, and it right. looks like the global economy is bottoming. I have to leave it there. Alicia, thank you so much for being with us. All right, you're watching First Move. The opening bell is next. the opening bell. You just got the tail end of it. I'm Zane Asher coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange. As expected today, Friday, uh, jobs report day. It is all about the stellar numbers we got. The Dow is already off to the races, up 200 points already. 266,000 jobs added in November, a lot better than what we had been anticipating. Our expectations were roughly around 180,000. Those numbers should further ease concerns about slowing U.S. economic growth. The manufacturing sector actually did better as well, added 54,000 jobs thanks to the resolution of uh, the GM strike and those workers returning back to work. And then we also got 45,000 jobs added in healthcare as well. So healthcare, another bright spot. Uh, meantime, the unemployment rate ticks slightly lower to 3.5% from 3.6%. Um, and time to take a look now at some of today's global movers. Uber shares are trading lower after the release of the company's first ever U.S. safety report. The company says it received almost 6,000 reports of sexual assaults during Uber trips in 2017 and 2018 as well. That includes over 450 reports of rape. Let's take a look at Tesla. Tesla up about 1.5% after some positive comments from a Morgan Stanley analyst. The analyst is raising his best case price target for the company to $500 a share, citing hopes for stronger sales in China uh, and the buzz over the cyberstruck shares of CrowdStrike are higher as well. The cybersecurity firm is one of the best IPO performers this year. It is reporting a narrower than expected quarterly loss and raising its full year outlook. Zoom video conferencing is lower. Zoom is another uh, one of uh, 2019's IPO winners. Its earnings beat expectations by a wide margin, but it gave weak guidance for the current quarter. Uh, let's talk jobs now with Deutsche Bank Chief US Economist Matthew Luzzetti. Uh, he's joining us here at the exchange. So, a stellar jobs report. Nobody is disagreeing with that. 266,000 jobs added in November. And even though some of it is attributed to the GM strikers returning back to work. Not all of it is. Even if you take out those numbers, it was still a good uh, jobs report overall. Absolutely. I, I think the way that the Fed will look at this is averaging through the past two months because you had GM workers subtracting from the previous month, adding back now. And if you do that, it's a very strong uh, pace and trend that we're seeing in the jobs market. We've added over 200,000 uh, private payrolls jobs on average over the past two months. Uh, for where we are in the business cycle, you know, more than a decade after the recession, 
this is very robust jobs growth. It, it came with lower unemployment rate, as you mentioned, uh, wage growth, which you know is, is looking steady at this point. So from an income growth perspective, from a consumer perspective, it's a very strong jobs report. And the previous months were revised upward as well. So even when the GMY workers were on strike, those numbers still came in better. Yeah, I think that's really important because the revisions that we've had over the past two months have completely changed the trajectory of what we thought the labor market was. Uh, last month we had 95,000 of upward revisions. This month we had additional upward revisions. So that's coming on top of what is already looking like solid job gains. It does change the trajectory a little bit. I think the Fed will have to be a bit more confident in their view that they can remain on pause and that the labor market and consumer will continue to carry the day even though manufacturing looks weak. Yeah, because it's not, it's never just about one jobs report. It's always about how that particular jobs report fits into the broader trend. Where do you see the Fed going in terms of interest rates next year? Yeah, so the, the message from them was pretty clear in October. Uh, the Chair Powell noted they needed to see a material reassessment in the economy for them to change rates again. Uh, on the downside, I think that meant that you need to either see the labor market slow or consumer spending slow. Obviously, today's jobs report uh, does not fit <laughs> yeah. that, that bill. Right. Uh, and so when they meet next week, I think the message from Chair Powell will be very similar. They are going to be on hold for the foreseeable future. Uh, on the other side, for rate hikes, I think you really need to see inflation pressures build. We don't expect that either. Actually, inflation has been lower than uh, expected recently. And therefore, you have a, a, a trajectory for the Fed where they're pausing at this point. Uh, they're waiting to see how things evolve. Uh, and you likely need to see something, let's say, negative on the trade front uh, to knock them off their course. Um, and then in terms of specific areas that we should be paying attention to in this jobs report, manufacturing was, was brighter, but you can attribute that also to the GM workers coming back to work. But um, overall, the trend for manufacturing has been, has been concerning. Uh, healthcare was also a bright spot uh, today as well. Yeah, you had uh, health and education was strong. Uh, manufacturing was, was, was very strong, due in part to the GM story. Uh, if you look at services providing industries, it was a, another strong report there. Uh, so the breadth of jobs growth was you know, pretty, pretty wide, and it was not driven by significant outliers. That's important. I, I think it tells you that the underlying health of the labor market is, is, is pretty healthy, uh, and that you know, the, the labor market should continue on a, on a decent trend. I would not expect 266,000 jobs on a, uh, per <laughs> on month a on, on an ongoing basis. basis. Uh, the job gains should continue to slow, uh -huh. but they should remain strong enough, I think, to keep the, the economy, uh, economic growth pretty solid. Okay, and in terms of obviously this week alone, we've had some uh, mixed messages when it comes to the U.S.-China trade war. That continues to drag on. If what the president said at the beginning of the week, which, you know, he kind of walked back, but if what he said at the beginning of the week, uh, which was that we might not see a deal until next year, I don't know if anyone actually believes that, but let's assume that he's right, yeah. how does that affect the labor market? Because obviously for U.S. companies, the issue is, is, is investment and, and business certainty. I think it depends on what exactly does that mean. So if we don't see a deal until after the, the election, um, but he does not go through with the December tariffs on China, uh, he continues to push that forward, and there's indications that they're not going to escalate further, mm -hmm. then I think economic growth can remain okay. CapEx will remain weak in that, in that environment. Um, but on, on the other hand, if he does raise tariffs, I think that is, could be very damaging for certainly business sentiment. We saw the ISM manufacturing index earlier this week was, was still weak. Mm -hmm. CEO confidence still looks uh, a bit weaker. Uh, so I think if he escalates, then, then I think you're in a, in a world where um, it really is a risk to growth. 
the Fed and thinking about rate comes, uh, cuts come back on the table. Luzelli, uh, life for us. Thank you so much. Thank Enjoy you. weekend. Okay, so now back to our breaking news story out of Florida. U.S. Uh, Navy base at Pensacola is now confirming that two people were killed in a shooting on its campus. The gunman has also been killed as well. We're told that three other people are injured. The base employs nearly 25,000 military and civilian personnel. The base is still on lockdown. Uh, the FBI says it is responding to the situation. Uh, we will keep our eye on this story and bring you more details as and when we have them. Huawei taking U.S. regulators to court. The company's chief security officer in the U.S. joins me after this short break. IMF chief says the cost to the world of the U.S.-China trade war will come to the hundreds of billions of dollars. Speaking to CNN, uh, Eleni Jokos on the sidelines of a development conference in Senegal, Christina Georgieva also insisted the IMF has the resources to support countries in need. First, we have been very clear what is the cost of trade war. By next year, we would lose, as a planet, $700 billion. This is 0.8% uh, of the global GDP. Everybody loses. Second, we have been also very clear what can be done so this slowdown in a synchronized manner we have seen can be stopped and reversed. And we say to countries three things. One. If you have monetary space, if you, cut, if you can cut interest rates, please do it. Very few countries now have that much space. Two, if you have fiscal space, please use it. Some countries do have fiscal space, and we are seeing uh, even more reluctant players like Germany, the Nether yeah. Netherlands, South Korea, they're coming up with stimulus packages. Three, most important, everybody can do it structural reforms, labor market reforms, eliminate red tape so private sector can boom, jobs can be created. So one, two, three, and I think uh, uh, we see governments around the world actually listening. But a lot of countries don't have fiscal room to take out more tools out of the monetary policy box. That's the big problem, and the world is very leveraged right now. If you see a further slowdown, all this trade war continuing, is the IMF ready to step in? Do you guys have enough resources to do that? And that was the very good news that we got during our annual meetings uh, in October, my inaugural. Uh, our shareholders uh, committed to provide the IMF with fiscal financial capacity of $1 trillion. So we do have sufficient firing power to step up. But we tell countries, do the right thing. So you don't need to come and knock on our door uh, for money. Right now, at this moment, how are you feeling about all the uncertainties? Do you feel optimistic that we're going to work as a global team? Because that's the message that you've been giving everyone. What we see is that we need each other more, but it is harder and harder to come together. And institutions like the IMF have a duty to bring our 189 membership and seek that consensus 
to take action together when this is necessary. I do believe that the world is changing much more rapidly today than 10, 20, 30 years ago. This is the new normal. Uncertainty is the new normal. And therefore, we have to help our membership to be more agile, more adaptable to this fast-changing world. Enjoy the pace of change today. It will never be that slow in the future. Huawei is fighting back. The Chinese tech company filed a lawsuit in the United States challenging new restrictions on doing business with American telecom operators. This is Huawei's second lawsuit. Earlier this year, it sued the government for banning federal agencies from buying its products. Andy Purdy is Huawei's chief security officer uh, here in the United States. He joins us live now from Washington. So, Andy, you believe that this FCC order violates the Constitution. What do you expect to come from this lawsuit? Well, our hope is to use this, one of the legal tools available to us, uh, to demonstrate that this action by the FCC, an independent agency, is really part of a coordinated U.S. government approach uh, to carpet bomb Huawei out of existence in the United States, despite the fact that it's going to impact thousands of jobs. So we want to take advantage of, of the legal system while we still can uh, to be able to say, no, you have to follow the Constitution. You have to use a rule-based approach. You have to follow due process. And so that's why we filed the, uh, filed the lawsuit. Um, after the ban, or at the time of the ban, I'm so sure you've heard this many times, but the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, actually said that part of the problem is that companies like Huawei and ZTE would be subject to China's laws and we'd both be ob obligated to cooperate with any request from China's intelligence services and to keep those requests secret. He also went on to add that both companies have engaged in contact, conduct like intellectual property theft, bribery and corruption. What is your response to that? Well, we've seen the British government and the German government uh, respond to the pressure from the United States government. They have said there have been no even allegations of wrongdoing against Huawei of a significant cybersecurity perspective. The fact is there are five nations in the world that have the ability to virtually implant hidden functionality and malware. That's why we have to concentrate not on blocking Huawei. We have to do the measures that are necessary to make America safer. The kinds of things that I discussed in our meetings at the United Nations in New York on Tuesday, we need objective and transparent basis steeped in international standards and independent testing so we have an objective basis for knowing which products are worthy of trust, regardless of where they're manufactured, regardless of where the company is headquartered. So then what are some of the key ways in which um, you might negotiate with the U.S. government to address some of the concerns it has about Huawei posing a national security threat? Well, I think, I think part of the issue, and we see it in what the European Union is doing with their 5G risk assessment, um, some of the principles we're communicating to Europe about what does it take to address real cybersecurity risk relative to the telecom and mobile operators, relative to the equipment providers. We can put in place, and we're open to talking to the U.S. government, and they're not willing to talk to us, about measures we can put in place where we can demonstrate, we can prove that our products are not influenced by the China government. We can prove that the conduct of Huawei employees in the United States are not subject to undue influence. We can demonstrate that in a way that can be proof 
not just a promise. And so we hope at some point the U.S. government will be willing to talk with us and we can take the situation where thousands of American jobs are at risk and they're not even willing to talk with us. So can you give sort of some specifics about the type of measures you might suggest? Well, there are certain measures right now that Nokia and Ericsson that are deeply connected to China in terms of their R&D, in terms of manufacture. Nokia is in fact tied in with the organization owned by the China government. So they're only allowed to do business in the United States because they're subject to government monitored risk mitigation and code evaluation. We are open to independent code evaluation. We are open to independent testing. It needs to be for all providers, and there need to be conformance programs for the telecom and mobile operators. Because cybersecurity, our dependence as a society on information and communication technologies, is going to grow dramatically. So we have to make sure we have these bases, these transparent bases, uh, for knowing which products are worthy of trust. Um, financially, Huawei is still doing well because of its sales in China, but just talk to us about how valuable the U.S. market is to Huawei, and, and if this continues to drag on without a resolution, how might that damage the company financially? Well, it's not entirely clear how much of an impact it's going to have in the U.S. As you know, we released our third quarter numbers that demonstrated over 24% growth year over year. Um, the fact is it's not clear how much we're going to be impacted, but none of our executives are going to lose their jobs uh, based on this. But there are over nearly 300 American companies that want to sell to Huawei. There are 40,000 jobs that are at risk. There is no national security implication for us being allowed to buy those products. If we're forced to, we want to stay from being supplied by U.S. companies. But if we're forced to, we're going to go elsewhere. And so we know there will be a negative impact on American jobs. Just like these trying to cut off our ability to sell to our small customers, it's going to impact thousands of jobs. It's going to impact service in rural America for no gain. Andy Purdy, thank you for your time. We'll be right back here on First Move after this short break. Don't go away. The world's highest spec motorbikes are in town and currently revving up for New York's annual industry fair over the weekend. Ducati Street Fighter V4 will be among the headliners. It was crowned, look at that go, it was crowned the most beautiful bike in Milan. The revamped model is a highlight of Ducati's 2020 collection. I caught up with the brand's North American CEO and began by asking him whether his industry has had a bad year uh, as the auto industry ha has suffered. Well, for Ducati, our sales have been very stable, and specifically in the category that uh, we're really known for, and that's the superbike category, we've had two years consistently in North America of top volumes in this category and also market share, which is unprecedented for us. Uh, so we don't really see the same effects in terms of that slowdown, and it largely has to do with the fact that our riders are seeking something that's youthful, uh, something that allows them to feel like it's a bit more sport-oriented and it's not rooted in the past. So we're always forward-looking, and this is, this is a product that people are looking forward to from a matter of how it can enhance their life as well. Um, Harley-Davidson uh, does the best just in terms of sales, in terms of market share uh, in this country. Um, how do you try and compete with them? Obviously, there's a, there's a huge difference in terms of sales numbers between Harley-Davidson and, and Ducati. Is that something you're even trying to do? And if so, how? 
Well, actually, a lot of their the brand is they're quite different in terms of product. Uh, while Harley Davidson is primarily focused on the cruiser market, we we're rooted in let's say sport. So every one of our motorcycles have that same DNA of sport motorcycling all the way through it. But what we've done over the last 10, 15 years is we've broadened our product offering so that we take the same DNA that people have come to love us for, and we've made the brand more accessible through things like the Diablo, which is a cruiser style motorcycle, the Multistrada, which is a little bit more of an off-road enduro world traveling motorcycle so it's taking our soul and our spirit of our product and having it available for more people and that that has actually allowed us to bring a lot of new customers in conquest customers that come from other brands okay and speaking of new customers ducati is, is a is a youthful brand not necessarily for young people but for people who are trying to recapture their youth so to speak so um but in terms of trying to get more women how do you make sure that it doesn't continue to be such a boys club uh, that's a great question, and a lot of it has to do with our communications. I mean, it starts with product and building product, and we have, for example, the Scrambler, the Diablo, a product that have been received very positively through all different categories, but women specifically, but then also our communications and making sure that we don't fall into the traps of, let's say, the traditional uh, sexist uh, bikini-clad marketing that used to be done in the years past. I mean, with a brand like Ducati, when we have such a beautiful motorcycle, it's attractive to both genders no matter what, so it really, it, we don't have to pander to one or the other. We stay true to who we are, and we make sure to be sensitive to those things that aren't relevant for our market. And, and, you know, some of the motorcycle brands in the U.S. are dealing with the issue of baby boomers, baby boomers getting older. Is that something that, that uh, is troubling Ducati or not? Definitely not. In fact, what we see is that uh, our demographic, since we have such a widespread in terms of age, it allows us to stay pretty consistent and we don't see our customers aging out, which is very helpful. All right, before we love and leave you, let's take a look and see how the markets are doing. We did get job numbers coming in on this Jobs Friday at 266,000 jobs added in November. You see the market certainly seems to like that. Uh, previous months were revised higher as well, partly because of the GM workers who are striking now returning back to work. That's it. You've been watching First Move. I'm Zane Asher. CNN Newsroom starts after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.